So, um, just in case this does get shared, just, just hi, John. Just do you want to just introduce yourself and um, just to let people know this is this is a, a discussion that we're having about zero carbon home building and possibly talking uh, a little bit about the retrofit story at the moment as well. And it's the eleventh of June for, for people to get a sense of where we're at at the moment. Great, thank you very much, Julian. So my name is John Christophers. Uh, I've been a practicing architect for 35 years um, and uh, partly with Associated Architects in Birmingham, uh, but Natalie Freelance uh, trading as Zero Carbon House in Birmingham. Uh, and really my speciality and my passion is, is the sort of zero carbon agenda. It has been since I was a student way back. So I've done lots of uh, buildings that have received quite a lot of interest over the years as we've sort of tried to force forward uh, into um, in, into the territory of seriously sustainable building. Uh, I'm based in Birmingham. I'm sort of partly working as an architect, partly in terms of the policy advice to local authorities um, in terms of what, what does zero carbon housing mean? Um, so that's probably quite enough about me. Brilliant, thanks. So to get us going, just can you just give us a, a feel for sort of where we're at really in terms of zero carbon building so you know is passive house the gold standard are the costs beginning to you know get aligned with 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 old-fashioned building uh, you know, there's lots of talk of prefabs is that is that where is that where we're heading um what was the other question i was going to ask here um and is that yeah and the other thing is is that is the market there you know because because we're still seeing built very traditional looking buildings going up are, but are people beginning to demand zero carbon buildings in the market? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a lot of questions there, and I'll try and cover them, Julian. <laughs> uh, I think um, you know, if if we just put this in a broader context, I think the building regulations in in the UK are what control standards, and from about sort of 30 years ago, they've they've very very slowly been ratcheting up. That's the minimum standard to which you're permitted to build in terms of thermal insulation and that sort of thing. Um, it's still very low uh, in this country compared with, with other European countries. Um, and I think critically, the standards achieved don't actually, um, sadly, across the UK, um, bear much relationship to the standards on paper. So it's not unusual to find a building performing 60% worse in terms of me the measured and monitored performance than what it's been signed off as. It's known as the performance gap, workmanship, um, insufficient supervision, etc. Um, are all part of the problem. But I think uh, looking forward, I, I think we're now in a very interesting sort of state of the game, really, where I think a lot more people are understanding what, um, what is needed. So I think um, in terms of the standards which, which exist um, or existed, the, um, the, the, the government of 15 years ago brought out the Code for Sustainable Homes, which um, was, was a sort of, uh, in my view, was, was a fantastic piece of conviction politics, which mapped out not only the standard, but a sort of trajectory for getting there uh, to a zero carbon standard, which was level six of the Code for Sustainable Homes, to which all homes in the UK should have been built from 2016 onwards. So that's now five years ago. But it was, it was scrapped by the then government of, of 2015. And um, I think it was interesting that it, it was a document that didn't just focus on carbon, although that was part of it, very much part of it, but it was a holistic thing, looking at the whole range of different things that make up sustainability, because we know sustainability is about so much more, you know, so biodiversity, 
um, the embodied carbon of, of buildings, et cetera, et cetera. There, there are so many different aspects of this water use. And the Code for Sustainable Homes had a go at sort of mapping that out. It wasn't perfect, but it was holistic, which I think is really important. Uh, but since that was withdrawn, I think we've been in a state where there's been really quite a policy vacuum. The government have brought out um, and uh, were consulting last year and came back in January this year on a future home standard, which which won't be which will be consulted on in further in 2023 and won't come in until 2025. Um, and I think many people feel that it is still not going to be an adequate standard. But in in the meantime, since um, over the last sort of few years, I think a number of standards have evolved. Passive house certainly, and I'll come back to that. But there are lots of others. There's Great work being done by LETI, L-E-T-I, the London Energy Transition Initiative in London, where a lot of architects and engineers have got together and said, you know, there are no standards, let's define what, what this should be. I think great, great work's been done. Um, the AECB, the Association for Environmentally Conscious Building, has been going for 30, 40 years. I've been a member most of that time and, and has its own standards and particularly a sort of pool of, of knowledge and, and expertise. Uh, and uh, the UK Green Buildings Council, which is um, part of the sort of world green buildings sort of thing, but it's not a it, it's not a um, uh, a quango or something. It's it's basically an alliance of <clears throat> uh, both architects, but also interestingly property developers and other uh, other people uh, interested in building. Uh, it's a, it's a sort of you know it's a very uh, broad alliance of people who want to do the right green thing because I think sometimes people think oh you know housing developers never want to do green or whatever. Now, you know, there are some really enlightened developers who understand that green is, is the future and um, are, are wanting to do the right thing. So I think interestingly, the UK GBC, the Green Buildings Council, perhaps has more traction with government because it's an alliance which includes business. Uh, and they have brought out their own net zero carbon um, standard uh, approaching net zero, which I think is a very interesting standard to, to, to look at. Um, and, and looks crucially at um, embodied carbon um, in, in the building. Uh, for those who may not be familiar, we, we, we talk about operational carbon and, and embodied carbon. The operational carbon is the carbon that a building uses during its you know, day to day operation, so many kilowatt hours per, uh, per year or whatever. The embodied carbon is what's locked up in the building materials um, as part of the construction and, and all those operations. And uh, when I was a student way back, it was only 7% of the e energy was the embodied carbon because buildings were guzzling so much energy. Uh, and so we really need to focus on that. As building standards have slowly advanced, that, that energy for operating the, the, the buildings, the operational carbon has come down and down, such that now you may be looking at the operational carbon each and every year for a 60-year notion of design life being um, not far off the embodied carbon and so the embodied carbon which a you know is is now is now big by comparison it could be 50 percent rather than 70 percent uh but 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 b crucially is is also you know is, is carbon which we would be emitting now at this terribly vulnerable time rather than you know each and every year over 60 years so for those of those people that get the environmental agenda and get that this is actually a climate emergency this uh, the embodied carbon has come very much to the um, to, to the fore from having been a sort of Cinderella sort of thing that most people didn't really even uh, understand existing. So um, that's broadly where we are in terms of, in terms of standards. And I think the passive house standard has has these advantages. 
A, that it's been around for nearly 30 years now. It originated in, in Germany and um, in Austria, Dr. Wolfgang Feist looking at why a building's not performing as they should and working out a sort of code. It's, it's quite a prescriptive way of doing things and it looks only at a particular way of doing things. So it's certainly not the only way of doing a zero carbon building. But I think it, um, the next advantage that it has is that quite a lot more people in the UK know about it now and have built it. And I think if you go back 10 years, um, you know, I, I'm fortunate that I did um, one of the pioneering buildings, which was actually, I think, England's first um, house, which was to both um, the Code for Sustainable Homes Level 6, the Zero Carbon Standard, and also Passive House. Um, but there's uh, across the industry, there's more of a, a body of knowledge about it now. Uh, in the UK, um, a, a good organisation called the Passive House Trust has been set up, which is a charity founded by builders and builders merchants and people visionary people who could see that this was the future. Uh, and they have very good resources um, and um, information available and very happy to share expertise and so forth. And so partly as a result of the great work they've been doing and the fact that there has been no other clear standard, I think a number of local authorities um, such as um, Exeter from 10 years ago, um, uh, the, the, the highly celebrated scheme in, in Norwich about three years ago now, mm. uh, all the work which is being done in York, which is all York Council, all to Passive House level, uh, Wolverhampton, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole, um, there's a whole raft of, of both local authorities increasingly, but also housing associations, um, enlightened property developers, um, I, I spoke not long ago to a property developer who had been very against, or should we say sceptical about Passive House, uh, but uh, was telling me, actually, you know, it's, it's the only standard out there that, that has a sort of, you know, has, has credibility. Uh, so I think for that reason, I think, and, and I certainly support it, I, I think the, the, the Passive House as a standard is not... Uh, it, it is a gold standard in some senses, in the sense that it, it looks at what we could call the building fabric. So the insulation standards of the wall, the windows, the roof, the floor, the air tightness, the mechanical ventilation, all that I think is very, very well modelled by Passive House. What it doesn't say anything about is where that energy comes from, that the Passive House classic standard, so it could still be from a fossil fuel and the, the, the original intention was that if you brought the energy right down and we're talking 90% reduction in, in, um, in energy use for, for, for heating of a house by using this standard. So, you know, if 77% of a typical UK household's um, spend is, is on energy and heating, then if you can make a massive impact, obviously, you know, the, 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 the social benefits, fuel poverty, all the things that a, a household can do with that freed up income to, uh, et cetera. Um, are very positive. So I think in terms of energy, Passive House is, is very, very good. In, in terms of where it comes from, there is now a standard called Passive House Plus, which means that you need to put some renewable energy um, on the roof, typically PV cells on the roof to sort of match what you're using. And that then does begin to get you to something like net zero. And there are then all the other sort of um, more wider sustainability issues, such as travel, transport, food, water, um, biodiversity, which Passive House says nothing about. So it's not a gold standard on, on those areas, but it's just, it's a narrow standard that, that doesn't look at those areas. So um, I'm going on a while, but you've asked a number of questions. Yeah. Are, are costs coming down? And I think the good news there is that they definitely are. I think the, um, if you look at Exeter, 
um, they have been building uh, council passive houses for um, I think 10 years now. And I think they reckoned um, that with their first tranche of, of work, they paid a premium of 25%, which is obviously quite a lot uh, on what they were doing. Uh, but they have now, since then, they've they've set up a sort of a, a framework. So they've got a number of contractors on a, on a sort of approved list for doing exactly this sort of work. Uh, and the expertise is now in the industry, uh, in, in the Exeter area. People know it and a lot more people have done it. And those that haven't, they can be sort of um, uh, mentored by, by someone who has. So I'm not sure whether I quite believe it, but in Exeter, they say there is now no differential. Um, in, in cost. Uh, if you look at other figures from the Passive House Trust, they've done a survey which looks back over the last few years at significant schemes which have been built. And they think, looking back historically, that there's been a plus 8% um, uh, capital extra cost uh, needed to build Passive House. But looking forward, as, as the scale of, of Passive House operations uh, gets bigger and the knowledge becomes more widely shared, they're saying plus 4%. Um, I think one has to caveat all these figures and costs by saying that we live in a market economy and we, it, it's not as if one can say, OK, this is this is what it will it will cost yeah. you, because uh, there are so many different factors that, that affect a site, such as, you know, um, the abnormals, the ground conditions, uh, how easy it is to get to, whether it's in a city centre. Um, yeah. If you're looking, if you're talking about plus X percent, well, plus X percent of what? Is it, is it a very, very low baseline or is, is, is it a sort of, you know, is it a reasonable baseline uh, in terms of quality? What's the kitchen going to be like, the door handles yeah. or whatever? Yeah. Are they going to fall off? Uh, so th there are a lot of issues around um, where the cost comes in. But um, I think I think the sort of between four and eight percent is is reasonable at the moment. But I think if you're looking at an area that that has never done it before, it's perhaps going to be a bit more the first time, yeah. and then and then sort of come down as 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 time as time goes on. I think. And that so, and that that reduction over time is is to do with developing industry locally and, and developing the skills locally. Is that? Absolutely, yeah. the local capability. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm if I'm talking to a, a contractor who's never done it before, there are a lot of risk bells ringing in their head. And you know, if if if, if from a builder's point of view, if you need to take air tightness, which is one of the one of the main things with passive house, which is important, which is basically because if you if you spend a lot of money insulating a house very well, but if the air can actually get out through a leaky gap and it doesn't have to wade slowly through the insulation, the air tightness is very, very critical. Doesn't mean you're going to suffocate in the house. There's still ventilation, but the air tightness holds the heat in the house. And that means that there's a membrane, almost like a balloon, which goes all the way around the house and every electrical wire or whatever that needs yeah. to go through that through that for an external light or something has to have a grommet on it and be really well sealed and if that sort of work hasn't been properly understood the trades aren't sequenced you know the plumber or the electrician has, has cut through something then there's all that sort of learning which needs yeah. to be done so for, from a contractor's point of view perhaps the first one um, it, it takes more more doing yeah. but I think once the knowledge is there then then yeah. the costs um, should come down yes. and, and those and those additional those those sort of figures from Exeter and elsewhere is, is that is that talking about social housing or, or you know sort of affordable housing and, and does you know does it, oh, yes. we're not we're not just talking about expensive houses that are just not very much no 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 Exeter is is uh, is is all or nearly all social housing uh, Norwich is the same 
York have, have taken a different view uh, and they're doing a sort of um, a mixture of, of tenures, some for sale, some shared ownership and, and, and some social housing of, of different sorts of affordable rents mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. But but yes, the, these are comparable figures. And I think there's, there's not, um, I, I would say this as well, that there's not, um, I think there are some things in, in a, a council developed house, a social house, which are probably less expensive than a commercially built house. But there are some things which are completely the other way around. So there's not a, uh, you know, it's, it's not an easy sort of thing to, um, to, to, to compare because, you know, if a house builder is, is building a house to, to sell it on, there are some things that they, they, that, that they would um, put in as less expensive than a, um, uh, a social house because they're not really worried about the, the maintenance over time and there are other things that they would put in as more expensive because it would help to sell the house uh, so so before going on to the, the retrofit story perhaps i just wanted yeah. to go back to your point about about um about the performance gap yeah because, because it's 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 one of those one of the, one of the issues that keeps coming back coming up when i'm talking to people about every aspect of of, of of decarbonisation is is the capacity to actually make this happen to enforce it, um, you know, and and obviously energy standards is is it, or building standards is, is a huge part of that story. And as I understand it, that job, that sort of building control job, doesn't even sit inside councils anymore. It tends to be a sort of a privatised job. So so how how can we tackle that? And what's and, and you know because that sounds like a huge scale of a problem if we're not able to to check the standards and to enforce the standards. It is, Julian, and, and one has to say that the, um, you know, I don't want to stereotype people. Some some big house um, developers are very good, but uh, one does hear horror stories of, of speculative housing estates which are being developed out and people sort of, you know, work through it like a sort of, you know, it's a, almost a factory that moves moves around the site. And if, if the culture on that site um, is not the, the culture of, of taking great care about these things, then that's where I think the problems lie. And the difference between, as, as you rightly say, the building regulations in, in this country are what, what control what happens. Um, and, and there's now a variety of different providers of that surface uh, who, who don't necessarily need to be within the council or not. I, I, I think there are still some very professional people doing it. But like an architect visiting a site, a building control officer can only visit at spot spot points in, in the construction. Um, and it sort of, um, it, it, it means that, you know, things can happen under the radar. Um, and I think particularly if there's a problem and if, if there's an attitude to want to cover up that problem rather than to put it right. That is partly um, the, the uh, where, where the sort of where the, the performance gap um, lets us down. But I think, by contrast, with with the passive house thing, um, that there is a different process because, as well as building control, there is a passive house uh, process of certification with an independent certifier. So you know, typically you would have in your design team an architect, an engineer, etc. The engineer would make a computer model of the building in the passive house software, but that that computer model then needs to be vetted by an independent third party certifier. And you know, it doesn't cost a lot. It's you know, it's a tiny percentage of, of the overall cost. But what it means is that there's another uh, there's another layer of, of, of checking. And that layer of checking requires that, you know, the, the delivery notes for the particular windows, for instance, are, are, um, are, are, are um, tabled and signed off and that, that, that there's, there's a post-completion check as well. So I think what often happens in the industry is if 
you know, if, if something is not available on a particular day, but for good reason, for instance, you know, once I, I was working on a passive house building um, near Droitwich, we'd specified um, some windows, triple glaze, passive house, whatever, uh, that the manufacturer in Ireland had quoted for them. And then they suddenly turned around and they said, actually, although we've quoted for this, we've now made a prototype and we're not happy about it and we withdraw our quote. Uh, and so we were left um, suddenly, you know, with, with weeks to go needing to look for another window manufacturer. And, you know, those sort of problems in the building industry are not necessarily through incompetence or people being devious or whatever, mm. you know, problems occur. Um, every building is a one-off prototype. Mm. But if, if at those points um, things are eroded in terms of the environmental standard and there's not another uh, layer of checking and people say, well, you know, it would have been nice to have X, but, you know, we've got to press the button and go with Y now. Um, then those are the sorts of points as well that can get picked up through this passive house checking process where, you know, compromises. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, to cut a long story short, the measured and monitored performance of buildings to building regulation standard can be as much as 60% off. The measured and monitored performance of passive house is pretty much spot on. And that is very reassuring. So, yes. you know, that's another yeah. good reason to, to, to use it, I guess. That's really helpful. Um, so, and, and then the other part of, of that sort of ensuring, ensuring standard, if you like, is, is to do with who the developers are. So, so we're seeing more and more local authorities having either sort of doing in-house building or, or arm's length uh, companies, Shropshire's got one uh, and, you know, many other places do as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, but my experience in Shropshire is that, is that they're still not confident about going for, going for passive house. But from what you've said, there really is no longer any reason not to. Um, that that, the, that the, the costs initially might be tricky just in terms of getting the skills together, but that's a job that, that, that needs to be done anyway. Um, and and that it's also a good way of guaranteeing the standard because of what, what you've just said. So it is, um, I, think, I think particularly what one needs to look at is that, you know, we've talked about capital costs, but if we're talking about um, a house which you're going to sell on, on on day one, perhaps one is only interested in the capital cost. But I think the running cost of, of a house uh, and therefore what we what we term the whole life costs, which we can look at both in cash terms and in carbon terms over a 30 or ideally a 60 year time span, are what we should really be talking at. And, and I think when you look at it in those terms, then it's a complete no brainer, Julian, yeah. that um, the, the um, you know, whether they fall to the the the, the, the tenant or, or whatever, if you look at the whole yeah. cost, then the heating cost, which you know, typical UK um, heating bills might be between seven hundred and three thousand pounds for a big leaky old house. But if we can get those heating costs down to a hundred pounds a year, then that each and every year over the whole lifetime of, of the house, then that makes a huge difference. And I think once you start to put renewables on, on the roof, for instance, then you're, you're into a, a, a very different ballgame. So I think if we're fixated solely on capital costs and we say, well, you know, um, if, if it's going to cost 8% more, then we, we want to build 8% more houses and not to build them to a better standard. Uh, I, I think that's a very short-sighted view in terms of the, the whole life carbon and the whole life running cost of, of the house. But yeah. I think in addition, it's also, as the government's own Committee for Climate Change have shown, it's also a very short-sighted view in terms of the, the, the capital cost, actually. Because if, if you build a house today to current building regulation standards, but within 10 years, you need to go back 
and you yeah. need to upgrade it to zero carbon standards, yeah. then um, the government's own committee have said that the cost of that is, is five times more. And the study behind it shows it's actually between five and 10 times more expensive. So it's more expensive, whichever way you do it, yeah. not, not to build to net zero standards now. Yeah. And you know that is why the Good Homes Alliance has this campaign going. Uh, just at the moment, and I certainly advocate them and re recommend commend them. Uh, the Good Homes Alliance, yeah. uh, and there's a vanguard scheme of, of local authorities who want uh, and others who wanted to do net zero. But their campaign at the moment is build net zero yeah. now. And, and I mean, just it's a bit of a side issue, but of course that whole that whole story about whole life costs it, it, it reminds me of this, you know other 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 parts of the the economy where you know. If, if you build things to last and for their long-term future, that is so much, so much more of a sustainable way to do it. But if you've got a model which is based on sale and we have a housing market in the UK, which is primarily about owner occupation, um, then that distorts, the, that, distorts that, that way of doing things. There's a great model, there's a, there's a company, I will just quickly go on this, there's a company called uh, River Simple who are producing hydrogen cars in Wales. Now, I'm not, not, I'm not selling the idea of hydrogen cars, by the way, and it's not necessarily the right way to go, but the model is that they are only going to be leasing them, so they will always own them. So therefore, they are building them to last. They have absolutely no interest in making them, you know, um, uh, to, to, with built-in obsolescence because they, they you know, and, and it's so obvious when you think about it. If, if the model totally is, agree. It, is that. it applies to many, many spheres of life. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. So, so moving on to the, to the retrofit story then. So, and 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 how that, how the two marry up at all. I mean, first, first of all, in terms of that, you know, that. That if, if an area like, let's say, Exeter or somewhere else is, is beginning to get to grips with, with passive house building, does that necessarily mean that they are also developing the skills that we need? Because we know that, you know, 80% of the homes or more that we will be in in 2050 are the ones that are already up that we need to do. And therefore, actually, that's the bigger job is, is bringing down the energy being going into those homes. Is there a relationship between the two in terms of the development in those, those industries and skills? I think there is and there isn't, Julian. I, I think I think there is in a sense that that some of the skills are, are transferable. Um, and um, you know, I, I'm actually sitting in my own zero carbon house here in Birmingham, which we were fortunate enough to be able to do. It was completed 12 years ago. Half of it is is new build, um, and half of it is is retrofit. And we wanted to see if we could do them do the old to the same net zero standard. As, um, as the new, and I'm pleased to say we managed to achieve it. And we had one builder doing, doing the whole lot. And so, you know, the same, the, the same skill set is, is needed. You still need the same trades and so forth. But I think there's been, um, I think retrofit is, is hugely important in my view, because as you say, you know, that 80% figure is, is probably more like approaching 90% now as 2050 draws, draws closer. But I think if you look at the carbon footprint of demolishing a house and building a new one, it's probably 10 times more the carbon footprint than, than retrofitting it. And um, I think the retrofit has been um, has been jaundiced by a sort of stop-start government policy, which is still, you know, only earlier this year stopped yet again, yeah. and we're, we're promised something else to come. But I think the people that have been um, forcing forward with retrofit, there's some wonderful work being done in Manchester, uh, um, led by Urbed, uh, and there's some good good work retrofit works um, in down in London doing things. 
Um, and I think I, I think there is a, a um, there is a body of knowledge about what needs to be done and how. But I think the um, the financing of it and, and the financial models are part of the part of the equation which which needs to be brought up to speed. But I think with retrofit, there are a whole lot of pieces of the jigsaw all of which I think need to be in place to make a retrofit successful. Some of the things that have gone wrong in the past, they, for instance, you know, if, if they haven't thought about the occupants and, and the tenants and how they're going to um, deal with, with all the sort of um, the social issues, then, you know, the whole thing can fall down on that. If the technical's not been thought through, if the cost and the finance model. So th th there's a whole raft of things and there's, there's some very good thinking on this now in the UK, but there isn't actually yet very much capacity at all for, for doing the work simply because there's no, you know, if, if, if you're a school leaver or whatever and you want to go into an industry, there is no retrofit industry. There's no there's no guarantee that the skills that you learn will be will, will be used. And so I think there are all these longer term policy issues which are holding back retrofit at the moment as well. So I think what we need is, you know, over the next five years, we, we need to, you know, we need to ramp up. Over, I think 2050 is too late to do all these. We've really got to aim to do them by 20, 2040. Uh, and, and we need to sort of ramp up very quickly to, to doing lots of them across the country. Um, and um, I think it's, you know, it, it's not complicated work, but it does need to be done very, very carefully. So I think those are the background of some of the things which are holding retrofit back. But I think if you look at it the other way around, I think there's a very, very strong argument for retrofit as part of a net zero policy for, for instance, a council as a whole. Because if we look, if we go back and we look at um, the equation I was describing earlier of embodied carbon and operational carbon, you can get your operational carbon down to a very small number and you can then use some renewable energy, whether that's solar hot water, uh, heat pumps, um, photovoltaic electric cells, you can get that um, get that energy from zero carbon sources and boom, you're, you're down at operational net zero. If you look at the, the embodied carbon, that's much more of a challenge because you've still got diggers, um, materials that need to be manufactured, windows, footprint of building materials, 8% of global CO2 comes from cement production alone, bricks, steel, um, aluminium, they're very, very high energy materials. Uh, and so, you know, if one looks more at timber-based construction, natural materials, um, you can get that carbon footprint down quite a bit. Uh, and we've now got metrics, which the RICS, the UK Green Buildings Council, the RIBA are, are looking at or have, have published to show how to measure these things. There's an academic body of knowledge about it. Um, there is still frustratingly no government standard whatsoever for it even in the future home standard it's been left out um, despite um, representations from the industry which is which is crazy really in my personal view um, the the government's environmental audit commission um, recently sent out a consultation to say well look do we need to look at this so i hope representations will be coming in but we're still a long long way away from this being taken seriously in, in any sort of government policy but that embodied carbon if you can get it right down to a low figure that's great but you're never going to get it down to zero because you you, you are being yeah. active you're building and in my view um and I, I think that the um a really interesting way forward is to say okay we've got our operational down to zero we've got our um our embodied carbon down to as low a figure as we can and rather than 
using these offset schemes, which, um, you know, many of them, I think one has questions about, but, you know, not to sort of give too jaundiced a view. Some of them are completely reputable, good ways of where you really can't reduce carbon of, of offsetting it. But I think if we could say, look, rather than doing something uh, to plant trees elsewhere or whatever, if we could take, um, take this carbon gap and we could say in the same area, as the new housing which we're building, we will retrofit existing homes to um, to a very very good standard. Then, um, if that home has been has been churning out a huge amount of carbon each each and every year, you've got demonstrable real local carbon reductions, um, which can be used depending on where you draw the red line, but can be used as part of a net zero sort of thinking philosophy. So I think we shouldn't just be talking about new building, we should be talking very much in the same breath about retrofitting and how we can do that. And you know, if, if uh, each new home we build, we retrofit two older homes, then, you know, I think that's fantastic in terms of, uh, of, of a sort of, you know, a social construct, but yeah. also um, a, a, a um, uh, a, a green and net zero construct and you know I, I think um, one of the main criticisms can be that you know there are those who are left behind by whatever sort of green measures have been done but yeah. I think this would be a way of really not leaving people behind but also you know a win-win and, and the skills which are you know some of the skills are, are transferable some of them are, are probably not that some of the specialist skills for retrofit are of a slightly different um, because you know it's, it's not like you're managing one big building site and okay yeah. you, everyone clocks in in the morning it's it's a very different uh, sort of method of, of building so you know th th those skills I think need to be nurtured and the industry brought up to speed as well at the same time. That's really interesting so so you're talk basically talking about using retrofit as the offset for the, for, for, for the remaining carbon in, in body carbon in, in new builds or not? So. That, that, absolutely that's that's one way of looking at it yeah, yes yeah. yes i mean i think there are a number of ways that you yeah. can look at it but I, I think that's that's what i'm proposing as part of a bigger sort of that's you know really policy piece yeah. which um and, and are there are there i mean could you do things for example with with if, i mean i presume this would only apply with with larger sites but if you're beginning to you know if, if you're if you're applying a sort of a strong version of the merton rule the, the on-site renewable energy that that yes. then also be, becomes available to 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 the neighbourhood beyond the beyond the new Absolutely. site. Yes, you know, yes, I think or, yeah. totally. And I think there's a lovely model of, of the community-owned um, renewable resource, isn't there? Which I think is now gathering momentum. And I think you know people are putting PV arrays on schools, on public buildings, that sort of thing. People are able to group together and subscribe to it, and so that gives an opportunity. Um, in, in a local area for people to become involved in managing it. Uh, also, it, it brings an opportunity just to raise awareness because I think we're, we're at a very, uh, I, I think we have to recognise that across the UK at the moment, people are on very different journeys. Some people have completely got climate emergency and they fear extinction within the foreseeable future. Others um, see it as a sort of a thing that may come and go. Um, others have been listening to David Attenborough. Others would rather get another beer out of the fridge and uh, forget about it all. And so I, I think I, I think that the community-owned vehicle is is an interesting way of, of engaging people. And I think some of these holistic parts of the sustainability picture I think are also very interesting. There's a framework called One Planet Living Principles, which incorporates a lot of these things and community engagement as part of it. So I'm I'm now thinking. So could 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 a could could sill money be justified as as a, 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 
also be spent on the retrofit scheme? I mean, obviously there's a difficulty because it might be about improving the homes of owner occupiers and is that really community community spend? But you know, if it, in terms of, for example, winning winning uh, people in, in in an area of a town where there is a brownfield site, which is actually makes a lot of sense for sustainable homes, but there might be some resistance. But if part of the offer is actually we're going to we're going to use the some you know, sill money to to actually offer you cheaper house, cheap, cheaper and cheaper heating and warmer warmer homes. There's a real there's a real win 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 opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's very much my vision that, uh, that yeah. I'm sort of putting putting forwards. I, I think it's I, I don't think we can simply say, OK, to, to a property developer, you need to finance the whole of this retrofit um, in order to, to uh, be allowed to do this work. I think it's it, it, I think the financing of the retrofit is is a complicated animal, as I've alluded to to yeah. earlier. But I think that could be very, very much part of the. Uh, part of the picture and I think the um, you know in parallel with that I, 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 I think that the government needs central government needs to come forward with policies you know e even in the conservative manifesto the, the, there was a large sum of money earmarked for uh, for retrofit um, which hasn't yet um, come forward to, to be spent but I think with 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 the right um, with with the right basket of, of different um, different incentives and, and underpinning and so forth. I mm. think that's very much part of the picture. I should have mentioned earlier, actually, alongside Manchester and the work being done in London, Cozy Homes Oxford is a very interesting initiative that might be more comparable to the sort of mm. Shropshire scene where uh, homeowners are able to plug in onto, you know, there's a lovely interactive internet tool where you can put in data about your home and you can then play around with, you know, how much would it cost me to put PV on the roof or to put yeah. triple glazing in or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think the other part of retrofit is that, you know, sometimes it will be, it will make sense to be a, a, a one hit thing that you go in, you, you do a whole house and, and that's, um, that's a great way to do it. And that's an economic way to do it. Uh, particularly if you can do a whole terrace at the same time, then you, you perhaps save, save you know, uh, 30, 40% of the cost because you've got the economies of scale. So that's a good way of doing it. But alternatively, uh, it can be a program which is done over a number of years so that if you've just changed all your windows to, uh, to double glazing only last year, then it might be crazy in terms of embodied carbon emissions to rip them all out and to change them to triple glazing. But you can say, okay, I'm going to insulate the walls of this house and um, at, you know, in 25 years time when I need to replace these windows, I'm going to have put the insulation on in such a way that the triple glazed window can slot in and I'm not going to have to rip out what I've done earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, and so th there are now methodologies um, which say, OK, there's a sort of passport type of thing, if you like, where you've got a, you've got a big game plan. Uh, and you can do these bits of it, but at the end of the day, you you you, you get a certificate, whether it's a passive house or, or whatever. Um, but um, th th that's that's the sort of you know the other method that I think we mustn't lose sight of may make sense with retrofit over over time. So this is really valuable. Thank you so much for this. Um, I, I won't keep you much longer, but just just you, you did touch on, and, it, and it's been it's been a point of discussion in, around here, it, the, the sort of the, the social aspect of, of retrofit. So you know, and, and it will vary, but there will be places where you know a lot of the social housing is is, is older people, and, and the idea of sort of coming in and changing everything about their homes is, is quite it's quite you know the, it generates a lot of fear. Um, so I just wondered if you, if you had any thoughts about that, but there was, there was something else in the back of my mind there as well. 
and I've forgotten what it is. So let's let's just stick. Oh, I know. Yeah. So and then the other part of that story was that that there may be some homes where you know where, where that, I don't know the, the social housing provider says look, there's just no way we can't retrofit this. We're just going to have to tear it down um, and rehouse you. Um, now I don't know if we're anywhere near that in in, in any situations, but that you know. I just wonder if you've got any thoughts on, on those. OK, well, certainly, yes. And I think on the first one, I think it's a really important point about, you know, how this is done socially. And uh, certainly in Birmingham, going back to the 70s, we had what was known at the time as the re-enveloping scheme, where Birmingham stopped pulling down terraced houses and uh, putting up high-rise flats before a number of local authorities and started going along its terraces of Victorian homes um, and giving them new roofs, new windows, new front gardens, new front doors, those that didn't have bathrooms at all, giving them new bathrooms at the back. And um, those management skills still exist, I think, um, the, the way of doing these things, because I think people were given, you know, even then there was, there was a whole checkerboard of, of tenures, different housing associations, owner occupiers, um, council, etc. Uh, but if if the offer was made that it's you know it's cheaper to you know it's much cheaper to do this now than to be left out, I think there are ways of of doing this, and there may be those who for whatever reason do want to be left out. Um, I think with with council properties there are always vacancies and, and that sort of thing, so you know um, a critical mass can be accumulated where you can then go in without social disruption. Uh, there's also um, I, I don't quite believe people who say they can go in and out in a week, but there is um, the, 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 there is a, 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 a Dutch model called Energiesprung, yeah. which um, it goes along and sort of lays a computer measures the outside of the house um, and, and makes off site the, the insulation panels that then need to go on. And the idea that the concept is that the, 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 the owner or the, or the occupant, I should say, goes on holiday for a fortnight and when they come back, it's all done. So, you know, some interventions can, can, be, can be done easily. But I think that um, I think one has to be realistic of, of, about these things. Um, so that's the first half of your question. You'll just have to remind me what the second half was. About whether there are some buildings that will just get torn down. That, 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 okay, that. yes. I, I don't believe that, actually. I mean, there may be some that are so rotten in their foundations that they should go, and there may be some that, for architectural reasons, should never have been there in the first place and should go. But I would say that the vast majority of buildings you can do good things with. And I, if I look at the, you know, perhaps the ones in the middle, um, all makes sense, you know, terraced houses. I, I think the natural thing is to insulate on the inside of the front elevation of a terraced house because that that brick and Victorian stone dressings and things in many of our uh, many of our Victorian terraced houses are part of the heritage. And I think people would feel um, emotionally and perhaps you know you may be in a conservation area, but I, I think you lose a lot if you lose all that. So typically, you could insulate on the inside of the front elevation but more efficiently and effectively on the outside of the rear and, and the back of a house. Um, so, you know, middle of the road houses, I think we, there's, I think that there are lots of ways you can do them. If you look at the, the other extremes, there are historic houses which are listed, et cetera, et cetera. And some people have said, oh, well, you know, I'd love to do this, but I, I live in a, a grade one listed building and we can't sort of thing. Now, I, I, I don't think that is the case. I think there are a lot of things that can be done even in heritage buildings and there's quite a lot of study done on this now. 
Um, and uh, Dame Fiona Reynolds, who think uh, was a great force for good when she was heading up the National Trust, was saying there isn't a choice between heritage and um, the environmental agenda. If we don't do the environmental agenda, there will be no heritage to protect. Mm. And I think there are lots of things the National Trust have done um, to put solar panels on, even grade one buildings to insulate, et cetera, et cetera, to look at uh, where it's appropriate secondary glazing. So, you know, I, I don't think one should say because you're in a conservation area, because it's a historic yeah. building, you can't yeah. do anything. Perhaps you can't do everything to quite the same extent, but I think yeah. you can have a darn good go at it. And I yeah. think you can make a very big difference. Yeah. At the other end, there's the, 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 there are, you know, perhaps the kind of least loved homes that, that are in this island at the moment are the sort of 1960s concrete um, uh, low-rise sort of um, system buildings that were put up. But I think um, yes, I, I so think I'm thinking those... To, I was thinking particularly of somewhere like Telford, for example, which, you know, where I grew up and there's, there's a large number of estates that were built in the, the late 60s, yeah. early 70s, which people generally yeah. being very, very low standard. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that this this green agenda could be taken as an opportunity for a huge facelift for those for, for those areas, because I think, you know, if if you are going to render the outside of a house and the, the um, and to put insulation all the way around it um, and perhaps, you know, here and there to selectively demolish some bits if, if the town planning has, has not been good, because there were lots of other problems associated with some of those and perhaps to intersperse some new housing development with them. But particularly to make um, make use of the natural um, the, the natural features which there are, because some of those some of those estates have now got really nice mature landscaping, yeah. um, and uh, I, I think with the right sort of intervention and the right sort of facelift on some of the uh, the older housing which which perhaps should remain, um, but um, looking at some new to go with it. I think there are lots of ways that, that, that this can be done. And as I, as I said earlier, I think, you know, if, if you look at this through the lens of carbon, then you're probably 10 times the amount of carbon to flatten the house and put a new house there in its place. And that's big spike of carbon now, which we could do without. Uh, yeah. Whereas if you can find a sensitive way that, you know, works socially, of course it has to work. I hope it goes without saying now works architecture Architecturally, uh, gives people pride in in their place, and you know there've been areas which have been transformed. And part of this is is process, I think. And when we talk about um, different housing models, I'm I'm old enough to have been involved in the Housing Action Trust, uh, which which was um, in Castle Vale, which was a um, a pretty bleak 1960s high-rise development in Birmingham, where lots of it, uh, lots of the high-rise was taken down and um, low-rise was put up with very much tenants involvement. I master-planned the urban village centre of that, which was the last phase, and the tenant involvement I think was fantastic. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I went along with six different plans, and when I've taken study tours back, you know, I, th 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 there are certain people that remember that, and they say, you know, we were allowed to choose. What was, what was going to happen there. And I think those tools and techniques for the sorts of estates like Telford you, that you're talking about, I think would be really valuable and important to use so that it's not something which is done unto an estate, you know, uh, from yeah. the top down, but it's something that, that can organically grow up and people can feel involvement and ownership with. And I think those sorts of issues, as much as the design and the architecture and the insulation will ensure that it's either a success or not if, if, the, if that engagement is, is done well. And yeah. part of the One Planet Living framework um, it, it involves exactly those sorts of uh, skills, I think. 
that's fantastic. Um, and that's, that, that was so much uh, richer than even I hoped for. So thank you so much for that. Um, and uh, yeah, no, we'll leave it there. I think probably, I, I, was just, I was just thinking actually, I think this, this works great as a podcast. So I think I'm probably just gonna do a, an audio recording of it. And then people can, you know, listen to it on the train or whatever, because I think there was a lot there. And I can I can think of people now who, you know, around around the country, green councillors who are sort of heavily involved in this stuff, who, who will really appreciate this. So thank you yeah, so yeah, much. Good, good. Well, do do keep me in the loop. And I think, you know, my yeah. final message, if I can be permitted, is we've got to do this right this time. It's you know, I, I don't think it's a question that you sort of, you know, I, I've heard some people talk about quote, doing the affordable elements of passive house. Well, you know, if you're going to build a Spitfire, you say, okay, well, we can afford it, but we're going to leave the tail off or leave the, leave the, uh, leave the propeller off or, or whatever. Passive house is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a very finely tuned thing so that it, it, it works to the standard that it does because it's been, it's been road tested to the sciences behind mm -hmm. it. And mm -hmm. I think equally retrofit, we can say, oh, well, we'll put a bit of insulation in and uh, that'll have to do. Or we can do it rigorously, either all on day one or, or you know, over a period of time to a net zero standard. But I think we shouldn't, I think we're at a moment in, in our sort of, history and culture and you know perhaps particularly post-covid and with the growing environmental un understanding and the economic imperative of, of doing things we're at a moment where i think we can say it's not that we need to choose between either you know can we have this standard or do we have to oh we can't afford it what a shame we'll have to we'll have to not do this or that i think we, i think we we can and we must have both and i think by saying as as a society as a council whatever by saying right this is the standard we're going to build to and you know it's, yeah. it may be plus four percent whatever in terms of capital costs but that will then drive the costs down because yeah. the industry will upskill and they will know where we're where we're going so yeah. i think we have to um you know, I think we really have to go for gold and be able to look back for future generations that we knew, you know, we knew there was a problem and we were uh, at this stage really pulling out all the stops to, to deal with it rather than just sort of, you know, tinkering around the edges. Thank you so much for your time. Great um, pleasure. And, yeah, and uh, hopefully we'll speak again. Yes, Julian. well, keep me in the loop. And if you are doing any social media, let, let me know, Julian, and I'll, Absolutely. I'll try and amplify it. Yes. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks for your interest. We'll stay in touch. Cheers again. Bye.